Chapter Three of Three Men and a Maid. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org. Three Men and a Maid by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter Three. For some moments, Sam remained where he was, staring after the girl as she flitted down the passage. He felt dizzy. Mental acrobatics always have an unsettling effect, and a young man may be excused for feeling a little dizzy when he is called upon suddenly and without any warning to readjust all his preconceived views on any subject. Listening to Eustace Hignett's story of his benighted romance, Sam had formed an unflattering opinion of this Wilhelmina Bennett, who had broken off her engagement simply because on the day of the marriage his cousin had been short of the necessary wedding garment. He had indeed, thought, a little smugly, how different his goddess of the red hair was from the object of Eustace Hignett's affections. And now they had proved to be one and the same. It was disturbing. It was like suddenly finding the vampire of a five-reel feature film turn into the heroine. Some men, on making the discovery of this girl's identity, might have felt that Providence had intervened to save them from a disastrous entanglement. This point of view never occurred to Samuel Marlowe. The way he looked at it was that he had been all wrong about Wilhelmina Bennett. Eustace, he felt, had been to blame throughout. If this girl had maltreated Eustace's finer feelings, then her reason for doing so must have been excellent and praiseworthy. After all, poor old Eustace, quite a good fellow, no doubt, in many ways. But, coming down to brass tacks, what was there about Eustace that gave him any license to monopolize the affections of a wonderful girl? Where, in a word, did Eustace Hignett get off? He made a tremendous grievance of the fact that she had broken off the engagement. But what right had he to go about the place expecting her to be engaged to him? Eustace Hignett, no doubt, looked upon the poor girl as utterly heartless. Marlowe regarded her behavior as thoroughly sensible. She had made a mistake, and Realizing this at the eleventh hour, she had the force of character to correct it. He was sorry for poor old Eustace, but he really could not permit the suggestion that Wilhelmina Bennett, her friends called her Billy, had not behaved in a perfectly splendid way throughout. It was women like Wilhelmina Bennett, Billy to her intimates, who made the world worth living in. Her friends called her Billy. He did not blame them. It was a delightful name and suited her to perfection. He practiced it a few times. Billy. 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 It certainly ran pleasantly off the tongue. Billy Bennett. Very musical. Billy Marlowe. Still better. We noticed among those present the charming and popular Mrs. Billy Marlowe. A consuming desire came over him to talk about the girl to someone. Obviously, indicated as the party of the second part, was Eustace Hignett. If Eustace was still capable of speech, and after all, the boat was hardly rolling at all. He would enjoy a further chat about his ruined life. Besides, he had another reason for seeking Eustace's society. As a man who had been actually engaged to marry this supreme girl, Eustace Hignett had an attraction for Sam akin to that of some great public monument. He had become a sort of shrine. He had taken on a glamour. Sam entered the stateroom almost reverentially with something of the emotions of a boy going to his first dime museum. The exhibit 
was lying on his back staring at the roof of the berth by lying absolutely still and forcing himself to think of purely inland scenes and objects he had contrived to reduce the green in his complexion to a mere tinge but it would be paltering with the truth to say that he felt debonair he received sam with a wan austerity sit down he said don't stand there swaying like that i can't bear it why we aren't out of the harbour yet surely you aren't going to be seasick already I, I can issue no positive guarantee perhaps if i can keep my mind off it i've had good results for the last ten minutes thinking steadily of the sahara there said eustace hignett with enthusiasm is the place for you that is something like a spot miles and miles of sand and not a drop of water anywhere sam sat down on the lounge you're quite right the great thing is to concentrate your mind on other topics why not for instance tell me something more about your unfortunate affair with that girl billy bennett i think you said her name was wilhelmina bennett where on earth do you get the idea her name was billy well, i had a notion that girls called wilhelmina were sometimes billy to their friends I never call her anything but Wilhelmina. But I really cannot talk about it. The recollection tortures me. That's just what you want. It's the counter-irritation principle. Persevere and you'll soon forget that you're on board ship at all. There's something in that, admitted Eustace reflectively. It's very good of you to be so sympathetic and interested. My dear fellow, anything that I can do. Where did you meet her first, for instance? At a dinner. Eustace Hignett broke off abruptly. He had a good memory, and he had just recollected the fish they had served at that dinner, a flabby, exhausted-looking fish, half sunk beneath the surface of a thick white sauce. And what struck you most forcibly about her at first? Her lovely hair, I suppose. How did you know she had lovely hair? My dear chap, I naturally assumed that any girl with whom you fell in love would have nice hair. Well, you're perfectly right, as it happens. Her hair was remarkably beautiful. It was red. Like autumn leaves with the sun on them, said Marlois ecstatically. What an extraordinary thing. That's an exact description. Her eyes were a deep blue, or rather green, blue, green. There is a shade of green that looks blue. What the devil do you know about the colour of her eyes? demanded Eustace heatedly. Am I telling you about her, or are you telling me? My dear old man, don't get excited. Don't you see I'm trying to construct this girl in my imagination, to visualise her? I don't pretend to doubt your special knowledge, but after all, green eyes generally do go with red hair, and there are all shades of green. There is the bright green of meadow grass, the dull green of the uncut emerald, the faint yellowish green of your face at the present moment. Don't talk about the colour of my face. Now you've gone and reminded me, just when I was beginning to forget. Awfully sorry, stupid of me. Get your mind off it again, quick. What were you saying? Oh, yes, this girl. I always think it helps to form a mental picture of people if one knows something about their tastes, what sort of things they are interested in, their favourite topics of conversation, and so on. This Miss Bennet now. What did she like talking about? Oh, all sorts of things. Yes, but what? Well, for one thing, she was very fond of poetry. It was that which first drew us together. Poetry! Sam's heart sank a little. 
He had read a certain amount of poetry at school, and once he had won a prize of three shillings and sixpence for the last line of a limerick in a competition in a weekly paper. But he was self-critic enough to know that poetry was not his long suit. Still, there was a library on board ship, and no doubt it would be possible to borrow the works of some standard poet and bone them up from time to time. Any special poet? Well, she seemed to like my stuff. You never read my sonnet sequence on spring, did you? No. What other poets did you like besides you? Tennyson, principally, said Eustace Hignett, with a reminiscent quiver in his voice. The hours we spent together reading the idylls of the king. The witch of what? inquired Sam, taking a pencil from his pocket and shooting out a cuff. The idylls of the king. My good man, I know you have a soul which will be considered inadequate by a common earthworm, but surely you have heard of Tennyson's idylls of the king? Oh, those! Why, my dear old chap, Tennyson's idylls of the king! Well, I should say, have I heard of Tennyson's idylls of the king? Well, really, I suppose you haven't a copy with you on board by any chance? There is a copy in my kit-bag, the very one we used to read together. Take it and keep it or throw it overboard. I don't want to see it again. Sam prospected among the shirts, collars, and trousers in the bag, and presently came upon a Morocco-bound volume. He laid it beside him on the lounge. Little by little, bit by bit, he said, I am beginning to form a sort of picture of this girl. This, what was her name again? Bennett. This Miss Bennett. You have a wonderful knack of description. You make her seem so real and vivid. Tell me some more about her. She wasn't keen on golf by any chance, I suppose. I believe she did play. The subject came up once, and she seemed rather enthusiastic. Why? Well, I'd much sooner talk to a girl about golf than poetry. You are hardly likely to be in a position to talk to Wilhelmina Bennett about either, I should imagine. No, there's that, of course. I was thinking of girls in general. Some girls bar golf, but then it's rather difficult to know how to start conversation. But tell me, were there any topics which got uh, on Miss Bennet's nerves, if you know what I mean? It seems to me that at one time or another you may have said something that offended her. I mean, it seems curious that she should have broken off the engagement if you had never disagreed or quarrelled about anything. Well, of course, there was always the matter of that dog of hers. She had a dog, you know, snappy brute of a Pekingese. If there was ever any shadow of disagreement— between us it had to do with that dog i made rather a point of it that i would not have it about the home after we were married i see said sam he shot his cuff once more and wrote on it dog conciliate yes of course that must have wounded her not half so much as he wounded me he pinned me by the ankle the day before we well her minor and i i mean were to have been married it's some satisfaction to me in my broken state to remember that I got home on the little beast with considerable juiciness, and lifted him clean over the Chesterfield. Sam shook his head reprovingly. "'You shouldn't have done that,' he said. He extended his cuff, and added the words, "'Vitally important,' to what he had just written. "'It was probably that which decided her.' "'Well, I hate dogs,' said Eustace Hignett querulously. I remember Wilhelmina once getting quite annoyed with me because I refused to step in and separate a couple of the brutes, absolute strangers to me, who were fighting in the street. I reminded her 
that we were all fighters now a ways that life itself was in a sense a fight but she wouldn't be reasonable about it she said that Sir Galahad would have done it like a shot I thought not we have no evidence whatsoever that Sir Galahad was ever called upon to do anything half as dangerous and anyway he wore armor give me a suit of mail reaching well down over the ankles and I will willingly intervene in a hundred dog-fights but in thin flannel trousers no Sam rose his heart was light he had never of course supposed that the girl was anything but perfect but it was nice to find his high opinion of her corroborated by one who had no reason to exhibit her in a favorable light he understood her point of view and sympathized with it an idealist how could she trust herself to Eustace Hignett how could she be content with a craven who instead of scouring the world in quest for deeds of daring-do had fallen down so lamentably on his first assignment there was a specious attractiveness about poor old Eustace which might conceivably win a girl's heart for a time he wrote poetry talked well and had a nice singing voice but as a partner for life well he simply wouldn't do that was all there was to it he simply didn't add up right a man a girl like Wilhelmina Bennett required for a husband was somebody entirely different somebody felt Samuel Marlowe much more like Samuel Marlowe swelled almost to bursting point with these reflections he went on deck to join the anti-luncheon promenade he saw Billy almost at once she had put on one of those nice snacky sports coats which so enhance feminine charms and was striding along the deck with the breeze playing with her vivid hair like the female equivalent of a Viking beside her walked young mr. Bream Mortimer Sam had been feeling a good deal of a fellow already but at the sight of her welcoming smile his self-esteem almost caused him to explode what magic there is in a girl's smile it is the raisin which if dropped in the yeast of male complacency induces fermentation oh there you are mr. Marlowe oh there you are said Bream Mortimer with a slightly different inflection I thought I'd like a breath of fresh air before lunch said Sam oh Bream said the girl hello do be a darling and take this heavy coat of mine down to my stateroom will you I had no idea it was so warm I'll carry it said Bream nonsense I wouldn't dream of burdening you with it trot along and put on the berth doesn't matter about folding it up all right said Bream moodily he trotted along there are moments when a man feels that all he needs in order to be a delivery wagon is a horse and driver he had better chirrup to the dog while he's there don't you think suggested Sam he felt that a resolute man with legs as long as Bream's might well deposit a cloak on a berth and be back in under half the minute oh yes Bream hello w while you're down there just chirrup a little more to poor Pinky he does appreciate it so Bream disappeared it is not always easy to interpret the emotions from a glance at a man's back but Bream's back looked like that of a man to whom the thought has occurred that given a couple of fiddles and a piano he would have made a good hired orchestra how is your dear little dog by the way inquired Sam solicitously as he fell into step by her side very much better now thanks I've made friends with a girl on board did you ever hear her name Jane Hubbard she's rather well-known big game hunter 
and she fixed up some sort of mixture for Pinky which did him the world of good. I don't know what was in it except uh, Worcester sauce, but she said she always gave it to her mules in Africa when they had the bots. Very nice of you to speak so affectionately of poor Pinky when he bit you. Animal spirits, said Sam tolerantly. Pure animal spirits. I like to see them. But of course I love all dogs. Oh, do you? So do I. I only wish they didn't fight so much. I'm always stopping dog fights. I do admire a man who knows what to do at a dog fight. I'm afraid I'm rather helpless myself. There never seems to be anything to catch hold of. She looked down. Have you been reading? What is the book? The volume of Tennyson. Are you fond of Tennyson? I worship him, said Sam reverently. Those, he glanced at his cuff, those idols of the king. I do not like to think what an ocean voyage would be if I had not my Tennyson with me. We must read him together. He is my favourite poet. We will. There is something about Tennyson. Yes, isn't there? I have felt that myself so often. Some poets are whales at epics and all that sort of thing, while others call it a day when they've written something that runs to a couple of verses. But where Tennyson had the bulge was his long game. It was just as good as his short. He was great off the tee and a marvel with his chip shots. Well, that sounds as though you played golf. Oh, when I'm not reading Tennyson, you can generally find me out on the links. Do you play? I love it. How extraordinary that we should have so much in common. We really ought to be great friends. He was pausing to select the best of three replies when the lunch bugle sounded. Oh dear, she cried, I must rush. But we shall see each other again up here afterwards. We will, said Sam. We'll sit and read Tennyson. Fine, uh, you and I and Mortimer. Oh no, Bream is going to sit down below and look after poor Pinky. Does he, does he know he is? Not yet, said Billy. I'm going to tell him at lunch. End of chapter 3 Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org